Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Refuse thy father and deny thy name. What is in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. What is in a name? Now, I know that you know where those words come from. That comes from the familiar play, obviously, Romeo and Juliet. And you know that little speech comes from Juliet herself. And if you know the point of the play, you know that that little speech, the the entire point of the speech is that Juliet means that Names, which are called, doesn't really mean anything. That names are insignificant. That names are irrelevant. That whether you call it a rose or you call it something else, it's still going to smell exactly the same. Because you remember, the only thing, the only thing that was keeping she and Romeo apart was their last name. See, there were the Montagues, there were the Capulets, and to her it made zero sense to let that one thing stand in the way of their being together. And so her conclusion is, names are irrelevant. The question she asks is, what is in a name? Well, that's an interesting point. Because according to God and the writers of Scripture, much is in a name. Because you know that in the Bible, names mean something, don't they? Names come with meaning. They are loaded with significance. They are embedded with theological power and value. They are laden with theology. You see, names in the Bible have meaning and value and profound theological implications, don't they? You know why? Because names, names, get this, are oftentimes used by God to reveal his plan and what he's doing in the world. God unfolds his plan through real historical people in the world, and their names are oftentimes indicators of what he has planned for the future. For instance, Adam means the ground. He was taken from the ground. Eve means life. She was the giver of life. Cain, the garden of the Lord. Abel, life is a vapor. Noah, one who brings rest. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Abraham, the father of many nations. Jacob, one who takes by the heel. Moses, drawn from the water. David, beloved by the Lord. Solomon, the bringer of peace. Isaiah, salvation is from Yahweh. And on and on it goes until, of course, we get to Jesus, Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. What's in a name? Only the plans of God and what he's doing in human history. You see, the reason why I bring this up is because there are two sons who appear in Isaiah chapter 7. And they have names. And their names reveal that God is up to something profound. The names of these sons reveal what God has planned for his people and what he is doing in human history. And the names of the sons are She'ar, Yashuv, and Emmanuel. She'ar, Yeshuv, and Emmanuel. Those are the sons. Those are the names. You see, Isaiah chapter 7 is the tale of two sons. And each of those names, She'ar, Yeshuv, and Emmanuel, they come with a promise. They come with a guarantee, a reason to trust, a reason to hope. A rose by another name wouldn't smell as sweet. You see, there is She'ar, She'ar Yeshuv, Isaiah's own son, and his name reveals God's plan for the people of Judah. And then there is Emmanuel, Emmanuel, whose name not only reveals that he's God, but that his arrival would secure and guarantee the fulfillment of the plan of salvation itself. Which means, yes, if you're wondering, Isaiah chapter 7 is a prediction of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ 700 years before it ever even happened. 
See, the whole reason why these two sons are mentioned is because in Isaiah chapter 7, the fate of the nation hangs in the balance. Like, seriously. They were, at this time, caught in a political crossfire that had the potential to wipe them off the face of the planet. Enemies from the north were closing in. Enemies from the east were closing in, and here was tiny little kingdom of Judah caught in the middle, and to make matters worse, the worst king in the history of Judah is sitting on the throne, and he just pulled a political maneuver so bonehead and stupid that it jeopardized the existence of his entire country. And so what does Yahweh do but in his mercy send Isaiah to comfort the king with the tale of two sons? each of whom has a name, and each name reveals what God is going to do. What you're about to see here this morning is not just a political crisis, nor is it even a prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ, although it is that. Rather, the issue here in this text, the issue here is trust. The issue here is faith. The issue here is believing that God is a king who can and must be trusted. The issue here this morning is, can you take God at his word? Can you trust in the sovereign, omnipotent power and invincible sovereignty of God? Because the whole point of Isaiah 7 is that even when it looks like there is no hope and even God himself is backed into a corner, God is in control. So let's go to the text. Let's see a God who does the impossible and how we can trust him. The effects of this text will be a stronger, robust, more more muscular faith that trusts in God. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see three compelling reasons to trust Emmanuel. Three compelling reasons to trust Emmanuel, God with us for every dilemma of life and the soul. That's where we're going. Three compelling reasons to trust Emmanuel, God with us for every dilemma of life and the soul. And so let's walk through the drama of the text. Let's watch the scene unfold. Let's begin first with the danger for the house of David. If you like to keep track of things, here's where we begin. The danger for the house of David. Verses 1 through 6. You remember perhaps that Isaiah chapter 6 signaled for us a new and even disturbing shift in Isaiah's ministry. Do you remember that? In chapter 6, Isaiah found himself in a vision of God at the very throne room. And in that vision, Yahweh revealed that Isaiah would wake up that next morning and preach to a people who did not want him to preach. No one would repent. No one would believe. No one would yield to the word of God. How's that for a ministry? And the reason for that is because mystery of mysteries, God would place a blinding curse upon his very own people so that they couldn't and wouldn't believe. That's chapter 6. But you see, the problem is what would only exacerbate the problem further, a factor that would make a hard and dangerous ministry even more hard and dangerous, is that a new king had recently ascended to the throne, and his name was Ahaz, and he was an absolute disaster. He, he was, without question, the worst king in the history of Judah. Not a believer, he would legislate idolatry. He would legalize child sacrifice, even offering two of his own sons in pagan worship. Everything his grandfather Uzziah had done was quickly lost by the godless and bumbling and fumbling Ahaz. He was soft on border issues, invaded from every side. He crippled the economy, and he would lead his people by the worst example possible, by not trusting in Yahweh, but instead the king of Assyria for protection. So suffice it to say that his efforts to build back better were an absolute disaster. You have to understand here that chapters 7 through 12 put us right smack in the middle of a crisis. A crisis the likes of which was like nothing they had seen for the last 200 years, ever since Judah and, and and, and Israel split together and caused civil war. 
And the crisis that literally sent the country into panic and alarm and lockdown was known as the Syro-Ephraimite War. The Syro-Ephraimite War. You don't have to know how to spell that. You just need to know that it's a thing. And it happened between 734 and 732 BC, which is exactly where this text places us. What is that? What is the Syro-Ephraimite War? I warned you that I'm going to get all historical on you. Here is the Syro-Ephraimite War. Here is the southern kingdom Judah where Ahaz was, down south. Here's Israel, or Ephraim as it came to be known, the northern kingdom of Israel, and you know that they were not friends. The problem is, what complicates this is that here is Assyria out east, and they are blowing up the Middle East as we speak, as they are expanding their kingdom at light speed, and at this very moment, they are headed due west to Judah down south, where Ahaz is, to Ephraim, just above them in the north, and then even to Syria, above them. All in a row, that's where Assyria is headed. And the king of Syria, not Assyria, the king of Syria and the king of Ephraim knew that Assyria crushed little nations like theirs, like insects on the pavement. And so what they did is they joined in an alliance together against the king of Assyria. But knowing, knowing that Ahaz and the kingdom of Judah would never, ever partner with them in a million years, had a plan. And their plan was to invade the southern kingdom of Judah, kill Ahaz, put a king of their choosing on the throne who would join them in the hopes that they could put a stop to Assyria from taking over everything. That's the Syro-Ephraimite War of 734. Ephraim and Syria in cahoots. Understandably, Ahaz and the whole country are a little nervous. The question was, the question was, who would Ahaz trust? And the question for you in every single problem and dilemma and difficulty and problem pressure moment that you face in your life is also who will you trust? In God, the sovereign king who governs everything that comes to pass, or something or someone else that's not God. Who would Ahaz trust? Let's watch the scene unfold, look at verses 1 and 2. And it was in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Retzin, king of Syria... And Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to war against it, but they were not able to conquer it. And it was declared to the house of David, saying, Syria has settled in Ephraim. And his heart and the heart of his people trembled like the trees of the forest, like before a great wind. There's a lot going on there, but you can totally tell what we have is a crisis on our hands, and it is the very crisis that I just described, the Syro-Ephraimite War. Here's Ahaz, who rules over Judah, but then notice verse 1. There's Retzin, the king of Syria. There is Pekah, the king of Israel, and they were buddies. They were pals, and they join an alliance together. And what does verse 1 say that they did? It says that they went up to Jerusalem to war against it, but thankfully they were not able to conquer it. Now, here's what you need to know here is that Isaiah is giving the short version, right? This here is but a tiny little slice of what is actually a long, drawn-out, two-year political drama with tons of backstory. In fact, these two kings, get this, they had already invaded Judah a couple years before this. And they had killed 120,000 Judean troops. And they had actually captured Ahaz, dragged him into a Syrian prison, locked him up. Somehow he managed to escape with his life. And yet despite all that, they could not conquer Jerusalem. And so it seemed that that was the threat was over. It was over. This is, this is finished. That was the past. The, the threat is neutralized. Until they got news, verse 2 that Syria is just on the other side of the border in Israel. What does that mean? It means they are teaming up again. They are at it again. They are preparing for an invasion. Do you see this? 
And again, Ahaz and Judah, they understood that they did not stand a chance against the combined Syria-Israeli army. They were outmanned, outgunned, outmatched, certainly to be destroyed, either from the kings from the north, either from Assyria from the east. I mean, no wonder it says that his heart trembled, and in the heart of his people trembled like the shaking of trees before a wind. So what this is is a meltdown moment. They're totally panicked, not trusting Yahweh. And yet I want you to notice something. I want you to notice something profoundly theological happening in verse 2. Notice that it says, this is not insignificant, that it was reported to the house of David about the Syrian army. The question is, to what does the house of David refer? Why is that significant? And you know why it's significant, don't you? Because it refers to a promise, God's promise, all the way back in 2 Samuel 7 of a great messianic king to come through the line of David. But you see, the reason why the house of David is mentioned here is because I think, and the house of Judah knows, that if either of these attacks are successful, either from the north or from the east, the entire messianic promise of a king to come is in jeopardy. I think they feel the Davidic covenant is on the line here. Think about it. If every descendant of David is murdered, there is no Messiah. I think that's the, that's the level of threat here. That's the level of danger they feel that this is. It's over. Their entire existence hangs in the balance. This is the proverbial rock in a hard place. But you see, here's the thing about Ahaz. He is a savvy politician. Spiritually stupid, but politically savvy. Because what Isaiah doesn't tell us because he didn't need to, because everyone at the time already knew, because 2 Chronicles 28 tells us is that Ahaz, get this, had already paid the king of Assyria. He already paid Assyria to come invade Israel and Syria and get them off of his back to invade them and destroy them. The very thing that the king of Assyria was already going to do had he not been paid to do so. So rather than join an anti-Syrian coalition, Ahaz decided to instead pay Assyria to invade Israel and neutralize the threat. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant idea. About as brilliant as three mice fighting and one mouse hires a cat to come kill the other two mice. Because what is the cat going to do to the third mouse? Ahaz. This was a tough place to be for a king, wasn't it? You see, the question is, would Ahaz be pro-Assyria or anti-Assyria? Neither option was a great option. To be pro-Assyria makes you Assyria's dog. To be anti-Assyria makes you Assyria's lunch. Be owned or destroyed by Assyria. Those were his options. Or were they? Were those the only two options on the table for him? Was there not a third option on the table for Ahaz and the house of David? Was not their God Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one who parted the waters and destroyed the Egyptians? Was not the third option on the table to trust Yahweh to deliver in a sovereign and supernatural way, even when it looked impossible? How? Did Ahaz and the house of David forget that one man alone with God is always in the majority? Ahaz shouldn't have been afraid of those kings. He should have been afraid for those kings because they did not stand a chance against Yahweh. What? What were the battalions and, and the chariots of Assyria's army compared to the God who spoke galaxies into existence? Do you see? The question is, the question is, what about you this morning? Before 
What are you tempted to tremble like little trees in the forest before a great wind? What for you is your Syro-Ephraimite crisis that makes you fear, that makes you tremble, that makes you doubt God? What is your default object of trust when you are caught between a rock and a hard place, when you are tempted to, in what are you tempted to trust when your back is against the wall and you feel like you are out of options? The question is, do you view life like Ahaz did? You are fearful or always angry because, according to your theology, God is small and people are big. Or do you view life through the lenses of God himself? God, no matter what it looks like from a human perspective, God is in control. Because Ahaz was not a man of faith, and he was not thinking correctly, and so Yahweh in his mercy sends Isaiah the prophet. Look at verses 3 and 4. And Yahweh said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz. You and your son, She'ar Yashuv, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, take care, be at peace, do not fear, let not your heart be in terror from these two smoking stumps, these two smoking logs. Don't be in fear because of the anger of Ratzin and Syria and the son of Somalia. And you see it, don't you? The first son in whose name is contained a prediction and a promise, and his name is She'ar Yeshuv, and he is Isaiah's own son. And what his name means, what his name predicts, we'll get there. But I want you to notice first that Yahweh calls Isaiah to meet Ahaz. In verse 3, Yahweh drops a pin, as it were, and gives him very precise coordinates and location where Ahaz could be found. Look at verse 3. Go out, meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Yeshuv. Notice, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. What, what is all of that? You know what that is? That's an address. That is a very precise address of where Ahaz could be found at that very moment. And where he is at that moment is pretty significant because you know what that stuff is? That's the source of the city's water supply. And Ahaz would be there at that moment because the city's water supply is the first thing that invading armies would destroy when they enter in. And so what this is, what this is, is that panicked and trembling king is at this moment preparing for an invasion from the north. And notice God not only tells where Isaiah where Ahaz is, but even gives him the script of what to say. Verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6. Say to him, take care. Be at peace. Do not fear. Let not your heart be in terror. Look how he mocks them before these two smoking stumps, these two smoking logs. Don't be in fear because of the anger of Ratzin in Syria, the son of Somalia. Although, they, although Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia plans evil against you, saying, here is their plan. God reveals to them what they said their plan was. Let us go up against Judah. Let us tear them apart. Let us take them possession for ourselves. Let us install our king in their midst. And who is the name of their king? The son of Tovah. There's the plan. That is why Ahaz and the nation of Judah is terrified. But did you notice? Did you notice there in the text? Trees. Did you notice that? Isn't it interesting to you that God or Isaiah uses trees about a dozen times in this prophecy as analogies for people? And yet you notice, you notice, don't you, to comfort Ahaz, Yahweh doesn't even give those two conniving kings of the north the dignity of being full-on trees. He calls them little stumps, two smoking logs. What's the point? The point is these dudes may have been fierce and brutal from a political perspective, but from God's perspective, all they were were charred little sticks that you step on and they blow away in the wind. That's why Yahweh says, take care. Have 
peace, Ahaz. Don't fear. Let not your heart be in terror. There is literally, Ahaz, nothing to be afraid of. There is nothing. In little church, I'll just have you know that those same commands from Yahweh are also just as equally applicable to you in all of the pressure moment, challenge, dilemmas, fearful moments of your life that you face also. Take care. Have peace. Do not fear. Let not your heart be in terror. Why? Why can we take that counsel? Because, because the question is, does not Yahweh care for you? He does. And has he not already written a book of your days before time began? He has. And is he not in loving, sovereign control over every moment of your life leading up to your death? He is. And this is crucial. Will he not in the end raise us from the dead and with sinless, glorified bodies never to sin or die again, will he not bring us safely into the kingdom of his son? That's exactly what he's going to do. And that is why he can and must be trusted. The question is, do you trust in your sovereign God? What is your Syro-Ephraimite war? Before what are you tempted to tremble? Like trees before a great wind. Because this right here, this was the king's opportunity. This was the king's opportunity to trust. But the question is, the question is, who is son number one? Who is She'ar Yeshuv? What is the meaning of his name? And why was it that God was insistent that he be present at this conversation between Isaiah and the king? And verse 3 is clear. She'ar Yeshuv is Isaiah's own son. And no, no, this is not take your son to work day. But this is take your son whose name reveals a prophecy for the entire nation to work day. You see that name, She'ar Yeshuv, you know what that literally means? That literally means a remnant will return. A remnant of people will return. That's what his name means. And what his name is, you understand, get this, it is a prediction. It is a prediction and a promise. It is a rebuke and a comfort all at the same time of what would happen to the people of Judah in the future because what would happen 120 years in the future is that Babylon would storm the gates, destroy the land, level the city to the ground, take the people as slaves back into Babylon. And from all appearances, it would look like it was over for the people of Judah, not so, not so. Because though, although nations usually typically don't survive the experience of exile, God makes clear through the name of Isaiah's son, a remnant will return. Do you see? And so, should Ahaz inquire the name of the little boy? Or should Isaiah introduce him to the king in that moment? There would be a message communicated to Ahaz. And the message is, God will judge his people for their sin. And he is going to send them into exile. But do not fear, a remnant will return. And one day God will fulfill every single promise he ever made to his people Israel. And that you see is the assurance that God will fulfill every promise he ever made to us. Which brings us next to the deliverance guaranteed by Yahweh. The deliverance guaranteed by Yahweh. We saw the danger for the house of David. And next we see the Deliverance guaranteed by Yahweh, verses 7 through 16. And the scene that you're about to see unfold between Isaiah and the king, to be honest, this really could have gone a lot better. This did not go well. 
And the reason for that is because the spiritual blindness, the lack of humility, the lack of trusting in Yahweh, the lack of faith by the people of Judah as a whole was exemplified by their king. He really was the king that they wanted. He was the king that they deserved. And he is the king that they most closely resembled. Because he simply refused to believe that God is faithful. He simply refused to believe that God is sovereign. He refused to believe that every proton and particle in the universe is under God's command. So let's watch the scene unfold. And as we do, I want you to be on the lookout. I want you to be on the listen out for the greatest prophecy of Christ's arrival ever made in the scriptures. In other words, be on the listen for son number two. Look at verses 7 through 9. Thus says Adonai Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh. It will not stand. It will not come to pass. Why? Look at the reason. For the head of Syria is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is Retzin. And within 60 years, the people of Ephraim will be shattered so that they will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, different ways to translate this last part here. One way to render it is you will not last. If you will not believe, you will not last. Well, it's a little cryptic, but you can totally tell can't you? At the very least, you could tell, okay, this is good news. There is good news here. This is incredible news. You can see it in verse 7. With sons standing beside him, Isaiah tells the king, it will not stand. It will not come to pass. What? What will not stand? What will not come to pass? The kings, the plans of the two wicked kings from the north in verse 6. It's, it's never going to happen. And what I love about verse 7 is that it is literally the end of the matter, isn't it? It's, it's the end of the matter. Crisis averted. There is not a problem. There is nothing to fear. If Yahweh declares that the plans of the kings of the north will come to nothing, then guess what? The plans of the kings of the north will come to nothing. And guess what? They did come to nothing. They never invaded. But you see, we need to pause here. This simple word and declaration from Yahweh to Ahaz should force us to pause for a moment and examine our own lives and our own faith and force us to ask the question. And the question is this. Do we find the word of God Evidence enough that he can and must be trusted? That's the question. It should have been enough for Ahaz here. The question is, is what God has spoken in his word, is that enough for us? Because as soon as Ahaz heard these words, he should have canceled the check he sent to Assyria, but he didn't. He should have, but he didn't. The question for you this morning is, can you implicitly trust in the word of God as if it were the very voice of God himself? Because that's exactly what it is. And maybe the real question is, and this will sting, the real question is, are you in God's word enough to know what it is that he has promised and declared so that you know what it is you are supposed to trust in? you understand, unless we are saturated with the words of the living God, we will always just be kites, blown by the winds of fear and emotion. And notice, notice the proof, the, the proof that God provides why the plans of the two kings from the north will literally come to nothing. Look at verses eight and nine. It's an odd, to us at first, an odd statement. The head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Retzin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that they will no longer be a people. 
and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramahia. If you will not believe, indeed you will not last. <laughs> what are we even talking about here? What, are, what is this? Well, you notice, let's pick this apart. You can see it. You can see it in the text. Notice, God names the countries, the capitals, and the kings of the nations who were about to invade them. Do you see that there? They're there in the text. He names them. What is this? Well, imagine if Russia and China colluded together to destroy America. Doesn't sound too incredibly crazy, to be honest. And imagine if a prophet showed up one day and said, you know what? Don't worry. It will not happen. It will not stand. It will not come to pass. Okay, prophet, can you give us the evidence for that? Sure. Even though Putin is the president of Russia and Moscow is the capital, even though Xi Jinping is the chairman of China and Beijing is the capital, nothing that they have planned together will at all come to pass. You see, the point is, the point of this is their countries were bigger, their capitals were wealthier, their kings were crazier, and on the surface, Judah didn't stand a chance. And none of that mattered. Size of opposing country was irrelevant. Size of army was insignificant. Wealth of a capital was meaningless. Craziness of the kings was literally pointless. It did not matter when you have Yahweh. Do you see? But you see, with God in our corner, fear is irrational. Terror is nonsensical. Panic and alarm are illogical in view of the sovereign love and power of God that governs the nations. And yet, did you notice there? At the end of verse 8, there's a little prophecy stuck inside, like a letter inside an envelope. This is incredible. Look at the end of verse 8. You won't believe what it is that God predicts. And yet again, you probably will because you should. Notice what he says. The plans of Ephraim are never going to work out because notice, within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that they will no longer be a people. You know what that is right there? That is proof that God is real and that his word is supernatural. I'm serious. We know from Assyrian records that in 670 BC, do the math, that's 65 years after this moment, that King Esarhaddon of Syria would march into Ephraim and he would take the last of the Jews into exile into Assyria, exactly like this text predicts. And the point for Ahaz is, you don't have to worry about the two chumps from the north because in 65 years, they won't even be there anyway. Can you see? Can you see the grace of God extended to this godless, unbelieving king? I mean, it's almost as if Yahweh is trying to win this man to repentance and faith, which is exactly what he's doing. But notice, notice the sober warning at the end of verse 9. If you will not believe, you will not last. And there it is, the theme of the chapter. Trust, faith, belief. Believing the word of God and what it is God has revealed. Believing who God has revealed himself to believe. And the point is, if you're not going to trust me, Ahaz... But instead, you're going to trust the king of Assyria to protect you. If you're going to go down that road, I just want you to know that it's going to go really, really badly for you. You will not last. In other words, Assyria is going to turn on you. And 30 years later, that is exactly what happened. And we see the repercussions of Ahaz's compromise in Isaiah chapter 36 through 39 when Assyria does invade. But you see, the application here is powerful and clear, isn't it? The application is faith trusts. Trust 
obeys. Unbelief has repercussions. Unbelief has consequences. Not trusting in God leads to a chain reaction of actions that ruin our lives and the lives of those around us. Don't you see, faith is so much more than just mere words. Faith obeys and believes and submits and trusts that no matter what it is that happens to us, we are always safe in the sovereign hands of God. Can you believe that this morning? What is your Syro-Ephraimite crisis? What are the smoking logs in your life before which you fear? But then verse 10, Yahweh speaks again. And here is, as they say, where the plot thickens. Because again, the tender mercy of Yahweh is on display here. He is giving this godless, bumbling king every opportunity to trust and believe. And notice what it is that he offers to the king in verse 11. Notice what he offers. Yahweh, through Isaiah, he says, Ask for yourself a sign, Ahaz. Ask for a sign. Make it as deep as Sheol. Make it as high as the heavens. In other words, ask for whatever you want. No matter how big, no matter how small. I mean, do you see what God is doing here? He's offering Ahaz some assurance, some collateral, a little down payment that what he just said, namely that the plans from the wicked kings of the north would come to nothing. In an act of good faith, Ahaz, let me offer to you the opportunity to ask for a sign as proof that this is really going to happen and that you can trust me. Ask for anything. Well, that's an interesting proposition, right? Normally, asking for signs is frowned upon, but when God himself is the one doing the offering, you'd be crazy not to take it, right? The question is, if God just handed a blank check to Ahaz, and he did, for what do you think Ahaz will ask? What, what amount do you think he's going to write on the check? What would you ask for? If God handed you a blank check and offered to you to ask for anything you wanted, if, you, if the gun was to your head and your kingdom hung in the balance, for what would you ask for? Well, as I said, when it came to policy, Ahaz was savvy. When it came to theology, Ahaz was a dummy. And he's about to do something really incredibly stupid. Look at verse 12. And Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put God, Yahweh, to the test. In other words, what did he do? He took the check, as it were, and he tore it in half, and he threw it to the ground. No, thank you. I don't want that. Wait, okay, you, you, you were just offered a blank check to ask for anything to give you the assurance that God would indeed deliver you from the two kings from the north, and you're not going to take it. No. No, and it's interesting because the king sounded pious, right? He sounded like he was godly. He even quoted Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, you shall not put Yahweh your God to the test. And yet, was that really Ahaz's concern? Did he really care about, the, care about the glory and the fame and the reputation of Yahweh? If he did, he wouldn't be having this conversation with Isaiah right now. But you see, clever king that he is, he knew, he understood, didn't he? He understood that if he asked for a sign and God gave him a sign that he would then be obligated to trust Yahweh and that he did not want to do because the check was already in the mail. And so what this was was not pious, it was godless. And we know that it was godless because of how Isaiah retorts with a growl in his voice. Look at verse 13. Isaiah says, hear now, O house of David. There it is again. Is it too small a thing for you that you weary men? That you weary my God also? I mean, what, what does it say? I mean, what does it mean when you say that a God who is infinite and sovereign, that you weary him? You, you exhaust us with your godlessness, Ahaz. And so where do you go from here? What, what do you do with this? How, how, how do you move on from this? Because think about it, with enemy nations closing in around them, 
The promise of the Messiah hanging in the balance. The promises of God on the line. And Ahaz refusing to ask for a sign. Guess what God does? He decides to provide one anyway because he is not about to let this petty, foolish, fearful king torpedo his plan. And now, now we get to son number two. And the most epic prediction of Jesus Christ found in the Old Testament. Look at verses 14 through 16. Fine, you don't want a sign? The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. And she'll give birth to a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey until he knows to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land before which you are in terror because of these two kings will be abandoned. And there he is, son number two. Son number two. And you can see that his name is Emmanuel. And like She'ar Yashuv, his name tells a story. His name gives a prediction of what God is doing in human history. His name is a revelation about what God is going to do for his people. You see, the whole point of the virgin birth of Jesus is that to ensure the preservation of the Davidic line and the fulfillment of the plan of salvation, the Messiah would arrive on the scene of history through the womb of a virgin, and he would be God himself. Because you know, you know that Emmanuel means God with us. God is with us, literally with us is God. And that name is as sweet as a rose because it tells us that this son, who he would be, would be none other than God himself in human flesh. And that's exactly what we see in Matthew 1, right? The fulfillment of the prophecy. And yet you noticed, didn't you? You noticed when I read that, there's more here than meets the eye, isn't there? You see, verses 15 and 16, look at the text. Verses 15 and 16, this is going to be hard. Hang with me. Verses 15 and 16 seem to reveal, do they not, that the child to be born would actually be born in Isaiah's own day. Do you see that? It's actually kind of bizarre. Look at the details. Verse 15 describes the, the diet of the son. He would eat curds and honey. I mean, what is that? Curds and honey. Is, that's, that's poor people food. That's, that's beans and rice. That's bread and water. That's the kind of food that you eat when your country is in deprivation, when your country is being invaded, when there's a famine in the land. We know that because of verse 21 when it makes the same reference. But the punchline, though, is verse 16. Before the son, notice, before the son is even old enough to choose right and wrong, the two kings from the north, their plans would be destroyed. Well, we know from history that's just a couple years away. So that means, that means this virgin-born son as a sign that God would protect his people would have to be born in Isaiah's own day. And yet, and yet... The Gospel of Matthew says that this verse predicts and portrays the virgin birth of Christ 700 years later. Which is it? Who are we supposed to listen to? Isaiah or Matthew? Is, here's the question, is Emmanuel a son born in the days of Ahaz the king? Or is he the virgin born Messiah Jesus Christ? And here now is why prophecy is so challenging and thrilling all at the same time. Again, this is going to take everything you've got. Hang with me. I believe this text cleverly reveals that there is in this prediction layers of significance. That we can see in this text, get this, two different sons predicted and prophesied all at the same time. In other words, what this is, is a kaleidoscope. I call this a prophetic kaleidoscope of future events. A kaleidoscope, you know, is an instrument, a, an optical instrument through which you look and you see one object reflected in a mirror so that you see two identical objects at the same time. That is a kaleidoscope. This is a kaleidoscope. 
You see, we're seeing one thing predicted in the future, and at the exact same time, we are seeing a second object predicted in even the more distant future. You see, the firstborn, virgin-born Emmanuel was a sign that God would be faithful and save his apostate people from the kings of the north. Otherwise, verse 16 makes zero sense and has zero relevance to Ahaz. At the exact same time, however, listen carefully, this first virgin-born son is a picture and a portrayal and a preview of the later, greater Emmanuel, who would in fact be God himself in human flesh. Otherwise, Matthew 1 verse 23 makes zero sense and had zero relevance to the people of that day. Do you see? So what I'm saying is the kaleidoscope of Isaiah 7 allows there to be not just one, but two virgin-born sons as proof that God was up to something profound. The first Emmanuel in Isaiah's day was a gracious sign of the presence of God. The second Emmanuel was God. The first Emmanuel was a sign that the threat from the north would be neutralized. The second Emmanuel would neutralize the threat of sin and death itself. The first Emmanuel was a sign from God that Judah would live again to see another day. The second Emmanuel was a sign from God that men could live forever. And I know this might sound strange. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this view. I didn't make it up, although I do believe it. And maybe your question is, and it should be, Jared, can you prove this? Can you prove this to the, from the text? Can you prove the kaleidoscope theory? Can you prove from the text that we are meant to see not just one, but in fact, two virgin-born sons predicted all at the same time, one being a picture and pointer to the other? Can you prove that? I think I can because where the answer is found is in the grammar of the text. Singulars and plurals, the answer is found at the granular level of the text. Get this, hang on, in verses 11, 12, 16, and 17, Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz only. Only Ahaz, and we know that because the pronouns and the verbs are in the singular, directed to Ahaz alone. But then notice who is being addressed in verse 13. Look at the text. Who's being addressed? What does it say? The house of David. Do you see that? In verses 13 and 14, all of the sudden, the pronouns and the verbs are suddenly in the plural. Which means he's not speaking to Ahaz in verses 13 and 14. He's speaking to a group of people. Two different groups of people here. Two different promises. Two different sons being guaranteed. I think the change in grammar and the use of the plural in verses 13 and 14 create a kaleidoscope that allow there to be not just one, but two virgin-born sons. The son in Ahaz's day and the other son born to Mary who would fulfill the plan of salvation itself. Now, whether you get that or agree with that, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 is clear. Isaiah 7 is a prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ, and you understand the virgin birth of Christ matters. This really does mean everything. In fact, put it this way. Either the spirit conceived the Father's incarnate Son in the womb of Mary, or the entirety of Christianity crashes to the ground. And I'll tell you why it matters and why it helps. In a snapshot, let me unfold for you the rest of the conversation. This will be all, give me two or three minutes here. Finally, the dismal future awaiting the people of Judah. The dismal future awaiting the people of Judah. I don't know if, if Ahaz stuck around to hear the rest of the conversation. I don't know. 
If he had, he would not be pleased with what he had to say because what Isaiah goes on to reveal is that Ahaz's consequences for trusting in Assyria and not in Yahweh, the consequences for that were about to play out. Yahweh would let that decision run its course. The rest of chapter 7 predicts and portrays the invasion of Assyria. They would turn on him. They would turn around and destroy them. The cat would eat the final mouse. That's the rest of chapter 7 in a snapshot. It is grim. It is weighty. It is serious. And we see it portrayed in chapters 36 through 39. And had God not miraculously delivered them, they would not have made it out alive. But we know, we know that God would preserve his people because of the two sons. She'ar Yeshuv and Emmanuel. A remnant will return, and God is with us. And speaking of Emmanuel, I give you three reasons to trust him. Three reasons to trust in Emmanuel. Number one, we should trust in Emmanuel, God with us, because he is our substitute. He is our great substitute. Don't you see? God became a man to come and die in the place of the very people who deserved to die. All the infinite salvation riches that he bought with his blood, when we placed our trust in him, were then transferred to our bankrupt spiritual bank accounts, which means in Christ, we, everything we have, everything we could possibly ask for or need in this life or in the next is found in Emmanuel, our substitute. Number two. We should trust in Emmanuel because he is our sufficiency. He is our sufficiency. But you see, the whole point of the sign of Emmanuel, God with us, is that God is with us. But you see, when you place your trust in Christ, it's not merely that you changed your beliefs, merely, and that Christ is out there in another galaxy somewhere. Oh, don't you see, when we placed our trust in Christ, in that moment, there was a sacred living union where our lives became so inseparably intertwined with his own that he lives his own life in and through us. Through the word and the spirit, we have full unhindered access to everything that Christ purchased and paid for. And so moment by moment, second by second, we cling to him with death grip desperation because that is what it looks like to trust. The third reason to trust Emmanuel, number three, he is our sovereign king. He is our sovereign king because you know all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And one day, little church, one day he will be with us once again. God with us, with us once again. And with the glory of a thousand sons, he will return to earth and build his kingdom, lift the curse and break the spell and raise the dead and restore paradise back to the planet and make all things be the way they ought to be. And to trust him means, listen very carefully, to trust him means that we know that anything we have ever lost or suffered for his sake will be restored 10,000 times over to us when he comes to claim his throne. And until that day, we utter the words in faith that we sing every Christmas, which says this, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. O come, O bright and morning star, bring us comfort from afar. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. Emmanuel, a rose by which another name just wouldn't 
smell as sweet. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we love heavy lifting texts. And that's what this is. There's always more there than meets the eye in your word. It's never as simple as we, as we first imagine it, Lord. And yet in saying that, Lord, we know that there is more glory to see, more beauty to behold, more strength to glean. And, oh, Lord, we are a people who need your strength right now. We cry out to you, Lord, we're just people. We're just dust. Our faith fails. Our faith falters. Our faith fumbles. Our faith is fallible. We need you. Help us to trust in real time. Oh, Lord, may we cling to the anchor of your word so that we may not be blown by the winds of fear and emotion. Help me help this flock. We are your flock. Come to us, O great shepherd, O Emmanuel, and help us to trust you for all that you are and all that you have revealed yourself to be, and may you receive the glory for it. And it's in his mighty and matchless name we pray.